Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Coronavirus Update. If you're in lockdown, just like me, don't worry. I've put together some of the best bits from my talk radio breakfast show into this daily podcast, so you won't miss any of the day's biggest coronavirus updates. Enjoy and stay safe. Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. To the Transport Secretary Grant Shapps, who joins us now. Good morning to you. Morning, Julia. Um, let's talk about this, this two-metre distance. The World Health Organization uh, has advised a one-metre distance uh, to maintain for social distancing and say that uh, washing down surfaces, people washing their hands, uh, and face masks, like, these are the things that are really crucial in terms of keeping people safe on the transport. And yet you want to impose a two-metre distance, meaning that we'll have something like 10% of the normal level of passengers on public transport. How on earth are we going to get the nation back to work when you're imposing a two metre distance? Yeah, well, the first thing to say is if you can work from home, do work from home, um, because we're not encouraging everyone to go back, only those who absolutely can't do their jobs from home. And the second thing to say is, um, a very unusual thing for a transport secretary to say, but please avoid public transport if you possibly can. So other means of transport, walking, cycling, of both of which I've just put a lot of money into and announced a two billion pound package of which 250 million is being spent for now quickly in this emergency um, to try to encourage people to go other ways and other things coming along as well like e-scooter trials being brought forward to next month from next year and all that sort of thing but it is the case as you say um, that the further apart you are um, the better it is and that's what our medical advisors our chief medical officer and chief scientists um, tell us so we're advising people the ideal is to maintain the two meters uh, but there will be times clearly where you pass somebody uh, in transport and you may not be at that distance we're uh, advising people to uh, wear a, a face covering not a mask a face covering that you make at home and there are clear instructions about how to do that on the gov.uk website uh, and uh, a number of other things that you can see in the guidance which is also downloadable from yeah. there example uh, it, it's better if you're side by side not face to face or back to back those things are better than being face to face so okay, there are various you're, you're offering... things that people can do you're offering advice, like say, you know, wear a face covering, and we understand people we shouldn't be going to you know, use medical grade uh, face masks, and people understand that. But why not at this point make masks compulsory on public transport? They may not actually make much of a difference. The evidence is a little bit unclear on that, but they they may make a difference at the margins. What's the cost of people having to wear a face mask? Yeah, no, you've you've nailed it right there, actually, which is that the the difference is a marginal one, 
but nonetheless, I think both in terms of a reassurance and not really so much for the person wearing it, but for that person not passing on uh, coronavirus. So why not make? But why not then? Even if it's at the margins, why not make it compulsory? Well, one of the things we don't want to do is take away. There's been a lot of talk, of course, over the weeks about making sure that we have uh, protective equipment or PPE. Uh, kit available for where it's required. We don't want to send people off in the wrong direction and take that away from where it's actually needed in medical circumstances, which is what Public Health England and everyone else advise to be the case. Um, so it's a, it's it's an assistance, but there are other things that you can do which are far more useful. That's what I should say. Wash your hands. Stay at home, first of all, if you, if you absolutely have to, uh, can't do your job from home, then we are saying you can start to go out to work if you're in one of a number of different uh, uh, industries like manufacturing and construction but not everything we're not asking people to go and work in some of those closed businesses still um, but there are many other things which are more helpful wash your hands before you go in when you come out of the underground carry hand sanitizer um, if you do come within two meters try to not be facing that person and much else which is all available okay. in the guidance which you can download right now why why not ensure that all transport workers have ppe have personal protective equipment we know that now at the front page of some of the papers a uh, rail ticket clerk uh belly mojinga she had some respiratory problems she's 47 years old she died after being spat at uh, by a, a passenger it was the day before lockdown there were no one was really wearing masks then she certainly wasn't um again a lot of transport workers very concerned that would it and we know of course bus drivers and people working working on transport networks, networks have been a very high risk of dying of coronavirus. Why not give it PPE for transport workers well, who are on the front line as well? First, first of all, that Belly Mujinga case is absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, you know, send my, my heart goes out to, to, the, to the family and friends. Um, but that was a case of somebody breaking the law and spitting at somebody, as far as we're aware, and the British Transport Police are investigating. Um, it, of course, um, there's, we've got to follow scientific advice and Public Health England are saying, look, if you're a train driver and you're in a cab and you're on your own, there really isn't a, a reason to wear um, PPE. But um, transport uh, workers are in lots of different conditions, as you, as you say, depending on whether they're, you know, driving a bus or, um, you know, a ticket office or all the many other uh, places they could be. So again, I've issued uh, further guidance to the transport operators themselves this week, earlier in the week, um, to ask them to look at their own individual workers, their own individual circumstances, and to follow the guidance carefully. Uh, and we've, of course, we've got um, we've got sort of checkups on that uh, through the health and safety okay. executive as um, well. But look, we know the thing is that lots of people are focusing on public transport. The vast majority of people in this country don't use public transport to get to or from work. They use their cars. Uh, we've seen places like London where the congestion charge has been uh, uh, stopped for the duration. But what about parking charges? Far more people would drive uh, to work wherever they work around the country if they knew they could park more cheaply, they could get to work more safely. Is it time to cut those parking charges so that people can actually get to work in the safest possible manner? So a lot of councils have taken that action uh, already. This does vary around the country and this is something which is a matter for the local authorities and we've asked them to look at the situation and circumstances uh, locally. There may be places that for reasons of um, sort of managing the traffic you do need to charge and other places where it's best not to and allow people to drive to work or get close and then walk the last uh, part. So I see a lot of different schemes coming together around the uh, country where excess car parking spaces or perhaps shopping centres which are still closed are being used for uh, all day parking. So there are many different options there. It's not a sort of blanket, they should all do this, but we're working very closely with local authorities uh, to find the right schemes in their areas.
Okay, and in terms of uh, travelling rather further afield, um, when it comes to quarantining people coming in and out of the country, uh, why would we allow people to come in and out of France without quarantine or Ireland, but not any other country? What's the purpose of that? Well, I think Ireland is the, is the exception. We've had a common travel area with Ireland, uh, well, way back even before the EU, um, and so uh, you know, travel has always been open between the two. It, it, it's it's always been treated that way and should continue to be in the same way as we're able to travel uh, between the different nations um, or, or the, uh, of the United Kingdom, although we do stress that there are slightly different rules in place in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, uh, including the stay at home uh, message for people listening there. But um, the, the rest of it will be uh, published in the, the, the days ahead. This isn't an instant thing, but we do think it's right, broadly speaking, that if we're asking um, Brits to stay at home where possible and work at home where possible, which remains the, the case, stay alert if you are uh, leaving home, uh, that we shouldn't then, uh, as we get these numbers right down, be re-importing cases uh, from elsewhere. Okay, but uh, you, am I not right in thinking that when the Home Office was calling for tighter controls on people arriving at uh, British airports and ports, uh, you were one of those arguing against that and against people being compulsory tested uh, when they arrived and then quarantine? Um, why now do you want to have those controls? Many would say it's you know, shutting the door after the uh, the bundle after the horse's bolt. No, I mean I just go with the medical uh, advice. I asked the chief medical officer right at the outset. You know, should we close the borders? His answer was no. That won't stop it at this stage. It's already here. Uh, that won't stop it at this stage. Uh, and apart from anything else, there was something like three million Brits which, who had to be British nationals who needed to come home. So it wouldn't have had, most of the people actually travelling here have, have been British citizens to come home and then stay at home as the rest of us have done. So that wouldn't have actually worked. The difference now is, of course, um, as we get that R number down and the number of cases down, what we don't want to be doing is re-importing cases. And, of course, at this end of the, uh, at this point in time, We've got the testing capacity and uh, much more knowledge about the virus, meaning that we can do the test, track and trace thing, which will make it actually work, whereas it would have been ineffective at the, at the start. OK. Uh, can we also talk about some of the... Again, it's not necessarily confusion. It's just people don't really understand what the logic is behind some of the, the new government rules. Um, I can right now... It is legal for me to go and sit two metres away from strangers on a bus or, or in the workplace or in a park, but I can't sit two metres away from my mum in her garden. I can also go to someone else's house, a complete stranger, walk around it to, with a view to buying it. But again, I can't go and sit in my mum's house. A lot of people are wondering, what on earth is the basis behind these rules? Can you explain it? I'm yeah. hoping there's some sense yeah, behind no, it. Yeah, there, no, there, there, there is. Um, so I, mean, I think in the first place, of course, locking down is quite straightforward. The message is the same. Everyone had to stay at home. Simples. The difficulty is, as soon as you start to unlock that, of course, you're going to get a, well, why can I do X, but I can't do Y situation? You know, I've got, I think I've talked to you about them before. My parents, who I haven't now seen for months, uh, who are in their 80s, and I'm desperate to, to see them. But there has to be a cut-off line somewhere. If you go and visit somebody's house, but if you go and look at somebody's house because you're moving home, or move home, indeed, it's a one-off activity. Of course, if I see my mum... Um, it, it, it won't be a one-off activity. I'll be going backwards and, and, and forwards. It's also very difficult to maintain social distancing in, in a case like that because it's your family. There has to be a line somewhere, and particularly with um, more elderly people, we're very, very concerned that they remain um, uh, protected. So the same rules apply um, to, for example, people with underlying health conditions, people over 70 and, and the like, uh, that we've said all along, which is incredible caution needs to be uh, applied okay. because we know that this virus 
hurt certain people more than others. Just finally, uh, I know you have to go, but um, we talk about protecting elderly people and we want to do that with our elderly parents and grandparents. But um, we now know so many deaths are now happening in care homes. 40% of deaths in England and Wales uh, in the final week of April were in care homes. Now, a lot of that's down to the fact there are fewer deaths elsewhere. However, a lot of this came down to the fact that we imported uh, coronavirus into our care homes by elderly people being discharged from hospitals to care homes, some actually testing positive for COVID and some not being, well, most not being tested at all. Looking back... Things were done at the time to save the NHS. Everyone understands that. We're not going to do things perfectly. No one's expecting the government not to make mistakes. Looking back, we don't have to be experts to think that that was genuinely the wrong policy, was it not? Some medical decisions will have been made at a time based on the knowledge that was available at that time. And as I constantly think about this and say, um, if we had all the knowledge at the beginning that we have now, if we ordered the testing capacity that we had now, if we understood this virus so much better, um, then, then, then of course we, we may have looked at the whole picture differently. Um, but it, it is the reality that and these weren't government uh, decisions, uh, medical decisions uh, will, will have been made uh, all along based on what was known at that moment in time. Um, it's probably worth mentioning, I mean, you, you already said it actually, um, that although the proportion of deaths in care homes looks higher. That's actually because the number of people dying in hospital has been coming down and the number of deaths in care homes has also been coming down. And the majority of care homes do not have coronavirus still uh, in this country as well. But every death has been an absolute tragedy and, you know, hearts go out to everybody involved. I know uh, quite a number of people, um, unfortunately, who haven't made it through um, this uh, this this crisis uh, okay. and it, it, I will be you know, in common with all of your listeners okay just finally can I sneak in at a final question before we go to the break if you're not racing to another interview uh, Mr Shapps have you got time yeah yeah yes yeah, I just, yeah. just want to ask you about the furlough scheme again there's so many different topics I want to ask you about but I, I was trying to focus on your your area of responsibility transport mm. but on the furlough scheme we've now got a quarter of the entire workforce 7.5 million people furloughed 14 billion pound cost a month could be Institute of Fiscal Studies says 80 billion pound total cost um how can we afford that Yes, it, look, it is an expensive scheme. Uh, I think probably the question is, how could we afford not to do it? Um, and the, the, the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, say uh, this has this will save the economy money in the longer run, because otherwise we'd end up with a situation where uh, we were paying the unemployment, where it's much harder to get those businesses up and running again, where the economy would grow slower coming out of this than we hope it will as we bounce back from this. So I think um, I, I think it's very important that we've done this. The figure I actually have is 10.1 billion uh, in cost um, so far. I think it's really, really important that uh, we do look after people, both save lives and save livelihoods, if you like. And as people start to move around now, stay alert as well. Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. Seven and a half million people furloughed is a quarter of the British workforce. The cost in the last month with so many people furloughed, £14 billion pounds, uh, a month to the taxpayer. So how can we pay for this? Well, let's talk to Paul Johnson. He's director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies and has been crunching the numbers. And he joins us now. Good morning to you. Good morning. Um, and these figures are quite staggering, aren't they? In a very different place from where we were hoping to be uh, by May uh, this year after Brexit. Um, tell us about the furlough scheme and, and how sustainable it is. Can we afford to have a, a scheme paying 80% of, of, of pay to a quarter of the British workforce on the taxpayer to the end of October? Well, it's certainly extremely expensive. And I think it's a lot more expensive than the Treasury initially Expected. I don't think they thought that anything like a quarter of the workforce would uh, would take would take it up, and they're certainly hoping that the numbers will drop off over time after the uh, at least change in tone to guidance that we got uh, on Sunday and Monday from the Prime Minister. But the total cost by the end of October could be certainly something like £80 billion, maybe more, just to put that in context. That is an absolutely vast <laughs> sum. and we, that, That's more than we spend on our entire education system. It's about five times what we spend on the entire police force. It's half the annual budget, more than half the annual budget for the National Health Service. It's an absolutely vast sum of money to be spending on this. And as you say, to, for the government to be paying for a quarter of the workforce, plus you know what's on the government's payroll anyway, that means the government's basically paying half the, the wages of half the people in the country. That's clearly not sustainable over any protracted period of time. Uh, but as a one-off, I mean, if this lasts for six, seven, eight, nine months, and then the economy gets back to normal, then yes, that would be affordable. And it's there in part to help the economy get back to normal to make sure people have jobs to go to when this crisis is over. And this is what we're constantly told, that yes, it's a huge cost. It seems an impossible level of cost, but the the alternative is far more costly. What would be happening? Those people who are saying, how on earth can the taxpayer foot the bill for this? If we didn't have a furlough scheme, what would be happening right now? What would be the additional costs? Uh, Well, we know that there are something more than six million on the furlough scheme, a large fraction of those, not all of them, but, but a large fraction of them would simply have been made unemployed by now. Um, certainly everyone in the hospitality sector, in bars, restaurants, hotels uh, and so on would be uh, would be unemployed at this point because they have no revenue at all. And so instead of the still huge number, uh, around 2 million people who have 
recently made applications for universal credit and job seekers allowance, that number would probably have been four, five, six million to the highest levels ever, uh, yet more unprecedented numbers. And the risk with that is that then it would take a lot longer, potentially, for those people then to find jobs later on. And a lot of the businesses they were working for would simply have gone bust uh, because they wouldn't have been able to keep up with their uh, with their payments. Now, there are risks as well with carrying on this for a long time. As I said, more businesses, I think, have taken this up than the Chancellor or the government expected because it's possible uh, to shut down without losing very much. Uh, and I think a number of businesses have decided to do that rather than perhaps wisely take the risks involved in carrying on working. Indeed. So um, one of the arguments now is, and many people were making that point earlier, is that we should be having a furlough scheme for people who are working part time. So businesses that can come back now, um, but realistically can't you know, sell as many goods or mm. produce as many meals, whether it's a takeaway or the, as, they, as they previously were, they could come back, um, but work on a part time basis. And then the government picks up the tab for the, the, the days they're not working. The employer picks up the tabs for the days they are working. All part of just the just cranking everything back into normal life. Yeah, well, well, of course, what businesses can do and I think are doing is that they can uh, keep some people working full time and put other people uh, perm- you know, working no time at all and on, on furlough. So if you're a business, even with four or five people, you can come back part time, but you have to do it with two of those people working full time and two not working at all. Um, and, and that, you know, that in some ways is a bit bit unfair on individuals and businesses. Uh, and uh, the Chancellor did suggest that from July, he'd try and find a way of allowing uh, the support for part-time workers. I think it's worth saying the current scheme was brought in at huge speed and was done deliberately very simply and with a considerable degree of rough justice. Um, I think as, 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 as we go further into this, uh, then some of those uh, rough edges will be knocked off as the Treasury and HMRC get a chance to adjust it and work out how they can actually uh, make a more complicated system work. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It, it is going to be a lot more complicated. And there's been quite a lot of um, credit given to the uh, Treasury, uh, the HMRC, for, for getting these schemes up and running pretty quickly. In terms of what other help could be given, I mean, bearing in mind we've got the latest GDP figures for the first quarter of this year that came out at seven this morning. Now, um, you know, that only covers a week, effectively, of the formal lockdown, although things were already grinding to a halt uh, by uh, early to mid-March anyway. But uh, down 2%. Um, market commentators we've spoken to have said, it could have been a lot worse, but we know for sure this next quarter we're going to get figures for uh, from uh, uh, April to June uh, is going to be devastating, isn't it? Oh, oh, it is. I mean, in the sense, in the sense we really haven't seen anything yet. I mean, the um, the fall in uh, income output over the quarter we're in at the moment will be anything between 25%, maybe even 33%. I mean, you know, a third we have lost. Well, it's not surprising. We've shut down a large section of the economy. Um, there's you know, huge amounts of things we, we're not allowed to spend our money um, on. As you said, a quarter of the workforce are now furloughed. It's hardly surprising that the economy will have contracted by probably more than a quarter, which is vastly more than ever in history. I mean, you probably literally have to look back to the Black Death or something to find uh, you know, anything anything remotely remotely similar. So yes, the the, the, the numbers we saw today are the uh, are just the, the just the very tip of a of a very huge iceberg. 
Yeah, exactly. And in, and in terms of how the economy does bounce back, the, the Telegraph say they've been uh, sneaked a document, they've managed to get a document which says that the Treasury is looking at a total cost to the economy of some £300 billion pounds, uh, over the full economic impact uh, of the pandemic. Now, we, we have seen in the past, uh, these reports get leaked and about the possibility of tax rises and pay freezes for public sector workers. And then, of course, everyone's saying, no, 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 don't do this. And then, of course, the Treasury says, no, no, we were never planning to do it anyway. So we have to take a lot of this with a pinch of salt, as I'm sure you know. But how are we going to pay for it? Whether it's 300 billion, 200 billion, 400 billion, I mean, these figures are kind of meaningless to most of us who don't deal in those sort of numbers. How is this going to be paid for? Well, I mean, it is a huge cost to the economy and it's a huge cost to the public finances, as you say, however many hundreds of billions it is, of 100 billion here and 100 billion there, and you're definitely talking serious money. Uh, but the, um, the, the real, I mean, the real question or the real answer to your question depends entirely really on how well the economy uh, bounces back over the next year or two. Um, so if, as the Bank of England, um, I think very optimistically suggested, uh, the economy bounces back uh, within 18 months or so to where it otherwise would have been, uh, then actually, in a sense, we won't have too much trouble paying for this. I mean, we, we will sort of, you know, we'll sort of bank the debt and we'll carry on um, you know, pretty much uh, as before. I think the really big risk, and I think this is much more likely, actually, is that the economy won't bounce all the way back uh, to where it otherwise would have been. And then not only will we have this big increase in debt that we've accumulated this year, we'll have a bigger deficit next year and in, and in successive years. Now, at some point, and I don't think that'll happen this year or next, but at some point, um, if that's the case, then we really won't have very much choice um, other than to do something about that. My guess is that what we'll end up doing about that will have to be largely on the tax side, because after a decade of spending cuts, there's not very much scope for additional spending cuts. And uh, certainly, I don't think the public is going to be terribly keen on reducing spending on the biggest um, area, the NHS, uh, for, for very good reason. And that's uh, uh, and that's actually the one area where we've seen continued spending increases over the last yeah. decade. The chances of cutting spending further on social care or local government or prisons or police or justice system or anything like that, I think are, are pretty remote given what's happened so far. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. And so much of what uh, the Boris Johnson government was promising in December, the mandate not just to deliver Brexit, but for these massive you know, public spending programmes, expanding, uh, uh, you know, help for certainly you know, closing down that north-south divide and the like. Huge plans for, for spending, very different from the austerity years under, under Cameron and under Theresa May. Um, is that now, I mean... If, if they're not going to have tax rises and they're not going to have those public sector cuts, uh, um, how, how are we going to do this? Because if we are continuing to borrow, we, can we consume that, assume that interest rates are going to continue to stay very, very, very historically low and, and therefore it's not going to cost so much to pay back? Or, or could, should we actually assume they will go up? And that is going to be a huge part of our public spending for decades to come. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the trouble is, of course, we don't know what's going to happen to in interest rates. I mean, we are incredibly lucky at the moment in the interest rates are at historically low levels. And despite the fact that we have huge debt, actually, it doesn't cost us very much. It costs us historically unusually small amounts to service that debt because interest rates are so very low and there's no indication that they're rising any time soon. I mean, if you look at what happens, you know, we, we, we've had very high levels of debt before, usually after wars. So if you go for, far enough back after the Napoleonic Wars, we had debt at this sort of level and higher for 
many decades and obviously after the second world war we had uh, very high debt over many decades and those debts are tended to be paid down um, not by um, certainly after the second world war that wasn't wasn't paid down by having years of austerity it was a result of years of quite strong economic growth and a bit of inflation actually which uh, which helped in that um, in, in, in that context so that gradually the size of the debt shrinks as a fraction of the size of the economy and that's what I think the government will hope will happen over the next decades. The problem we've had since 2010, of course, is the economy hasn't grown uh, terribly strongly. And so uh, even with um, the uh, the spending cuts that, we, that we've that we had, the, the debt um, hasn't fallen very much over that period. And that's something that, uh, you know, is going to be the most important thing is how the economy grows over the next decade. Online, on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Uh, now let's uh, talk about well what happens when the furlough scheme ends because the Federation of Small Businesses say that one in three of the small firms currently on ice effectively fear they'll never reopen amid widespread plans for redundancy. Well, let's talk to Alan Sodi. He's head of media at the Federation of Small Businesses and he joins us now. Uh, Alan, I mean, that's really, really worrying, isn't it? And a, a fear that a lot of people have had that the moment the furlough scheme does end, that's when uh, the redundancy notices go out. Well, yeah, exactly, Julia. And, you know, our survey that we've got out today found that 37% of small employers have been considering redundancies. And that just shows why that extra support, whether it's through the furlough scheme or other schemes that have been put in place to support small businesses through this dreadful period, that that they are kept there or that they are adapted as the circumstances adapt to make sure that small businesses get through this awful period to make sure that jobs are maintained and that they can come out the other side and that there can be economic growth. And, you know, I mean, a, a staggering stat is, is that we found 71% of small employers have furloughed at least some staff, a huge number. But of those, the vast majority want to be able to bring their staff back a bit at a time. So that the, the, the partial furlough idea where you could pay your staff wages to work, say, two and a half days a week, but have them furloughed the other two and a half. That's going to be really important for some to be able to get back up yes. and running gradually. And perhaps, again, lots of people are saying should have been in place from, you know, pretty early on, and perhaps even in place now. Perhaps this question is a bit too complicated, and they're trying to work out how to do this. I mean, these schemes, with a quarter of the entire British workforce on this scheme, 7.5 million people right now, uh, I, I think if we, and whatever one's political views, and let's face it, the Treasury has handled this pretty darn well um, in, in terms of the actual running of the the system whether you agree with it or not but but this is the thing isn't it and um, what we're hoping is that say for instance a, a small business selling you know what, whatever it is uh, in, on the high street or online or, or a small restaurant or, or pub that they they're, they're frozen at the moment because we're not allowed out as we all come out they can come back to work gradually and then you know hopefully i don't know in a few months time six months time everything's back to normal people spending normally and then business is fine but the reality is we are going to take a long road back into recovery even if we do get that v-shape you know go back up it's still going to take you know that is still going to be months at a time and whether businesses can survive that when so many businesses run at a very very tight profit margin and we know there'll be many people who are the directors of the businesses well they're not getting any money at all if they've been paying themselves in dividends as the tax system encourages them to do they're not getting any income at all at the moment and at some point the money is just going to run out well that's right and you know we've heard from lots of members who who 
um, in some cases, really, really feel as though they're falling through the cracks. They're not eligible for one thing. They're not eligible for another. Uh, and it's important for the government to keep looking at those cases as well. I mean, a, while, a little while ago, on an ongoing basis, we are forwarding hundreds and hundreds of emails where we've been asking people to describe their circumstances, where they feel as though, or indeed are, the ones left out, the ones who are falling through, through the gaps. But even for those who have been getting support so far, I think from what the Chancellor was saying yesterday, Julia, it it is quite clear that it is going to take a long time to get back up and running. And there are some sectors, you know, sectors like hospitality and leisure, for example, uh, where it is going to be a long way down the road before they can be back up and running in anything like how it used to be. And again, it shows why those support systems will have to adapt to that and have to reflect that going forward over quite a long time to make sure that, again, those businesses don't just simply run out of money and have to fold, that they can be there for the future. They're providing the jobs, they're providing the growth, because in the end, we will need the economy to grow to pay for all of this. Uh, yes, we will. And, and indeed, and also we will want places to buy things from and to uh, and goods to buy and, and, and restaurants and pubs to, to visit. If there's one thing that the government could do, which they've not done so far to help small businesses, what would it be? Well, you know, I think it's just important that, that a flexible approach is kept, that things are kept under review and, and that things are adapted as the situation unfolds. And so far, with the schemes that the government has brought in, um, there have been, you know, a lot of things that have worked pretty well. Most people have had a good experience of the furloughing scheme, not everyone, but most people. Yeah. Um, there is the support for self-employed coming in today. But as you say, there are some who do not get benefit from that. There are 3.5 million self-employed who should be eligible to apply for it. But then people like company directors, people who are more newly self-employed, people who are above a certain uh, annual profit, they are not benefiting from that. Hopefully some of those benefit from some of the other schemes. But as I say, I know some are falling through the cracks and it's important to keep all of these things under review, look at whether any of the existing schemes need to be extended and even look at, frankly, whether there needs to be some kind of extra hardship fund for those who really have fallen between all the gaps. Online, on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Thanks for listening to today's Julia Hartley Brewer coronavirus update. Please don't forget to like, comment and most importantly, subscribe. And you can catch me live on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 till 10. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.